The great thing about being a guest speaker is that you get to exalt and praise the pastor because he can't do that. And being in high school and being a part of Young Life, I got to experience the life of Paul Phillips firsthand. And to say to you here that you don't know how fortunate you are to be at this church and to be under Paul Phillips because he is taking you a place that a lot of churches aren't taking you. And that's to God's word, to live and to think biblically. So I just want to say thanks, Paul, for all that you do and all that you've been in my life as a spiritual father. In the 1500s, we had an epic event that shaped not only church history, but history in general. The Protestant Reformation took place where they broke away from Catholicism. And this was led primarily by a man named John Calvin. Part of the Reformation was to say we are going to be completely distinct at our core beliefs. One of those beliefs is what we're going to discuss today. But there, it was part of the five solas, the five alones. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Solas Christus, through Christ alone. Sola scriptura, through scripture alone. And last, the one we'll be discussing today, sola de gloria, to the glory of God alone. Defining glory, we have to separate what we're going to be looking at as opposed to other definitions for glory in Scripture. You could have glory as a noun, you could have glory as a verb. The glory of God as a noun is described as His holiness within God going public. And you see that in Isaiah 6 when he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Meaning that His intricate holiness is over the earth. But what we'll be looking at today is the verb of glory. And that could be better defined as praise or exaltation. So if you want to take out the glory of God alone, you could say to the praise or the exaltation of God alone. And if you're writing today or you take mental notes, I want to kind of take the glory of God alone and let's make it into a question to say, why does God deserve all the glory? Or if you want to make it personal, why does God deserve all the glory in my life? And I want to give six reasons for why God deserves all the glory in your life. But before we do that, let's pray as we open God's Word and ask Him to speak to us. Father, I feel so inadequate to be here to open Your Word, to teach Your Word. I pray that You will give us guidance, that Your Spirit will be near, and that most of all, You will receive all the glory. We pray this in Your name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 115. Discussing six reasons for why God deserves all the glory. The first reason for why God deserves all the glory is that God is steadfast. Let's read verse 1 together. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast means fixed, unmovable, firmly loyal, unswerving, The thing is, is that God is steadfast. 
He's loyal in who he is by his nature. And God's love is seen here as just who he is in steadfastness. And you can also tell his faithfulness through the word Lord, by definition, has a loyalty, a faithfulness to it. So you have three words here in this first verse that speak to God's steadfastness, his faithfulness. You know, steadfast love. There we go. Lord within that and then faithfulness. So God's who God is, is his faithfulness, his steadfastness. One demonstration of what I look at when I see being fixed or being solid is when I was eight years old, the strongest man I knew was my grandfather. My grandfather had what was commonly coined the jailhouse. And every grandkid knew of the jailhouse because once you were in the jailhouse, you couldn't get out. It was, you were down on your tail and he would wrap his arms around you and there was no way to get out. And that's what we should look at as God's steadfastness, God's steadfast love. When you are a believer in Christ, God's love is wrapped around you in a way that he's never going to let you go. You might be sitting here and saying, hey, I'm steadfast, I'm faithful. Well, I know personally, you could ask my family, that has Tyler always been faithful? Has Tyler always been steadfast? And they'll be quick to tell you that I haven't always been steadfast, and maybe 50% if I'm lucky. The fact is, is as humans, we have fallen short. We have fallen short of the mark, but God is steadfast. It's caused Frederick Lehman to say in his song, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. And it shall forever more endure. God's love will endure. Unlike any way that we will ever know. We are humbled at how much we fall short. And how we are so quick to become unstable. To become unloyal. God has chosen us. And He will not fade away in that love. Jeremiah 31.3, if you want to jot that down. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I will continue my faithfulness to you. God deserves all the glory in your life because He is steadfast. And you are not. He is always steadfast. And because of that, He deserves all the glory. The second reason for why God deserves all the glory in your life is that God is sovereign. Read verse 2 and 3. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. In this section here, the psalmist is dealing with a discussion about their gods compared to the God of the Bible. He's dealing with saying, wait, your God, you know, who are you to say, talking about my God? And it's really almost the psalmist is laughing at the question because he understands the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does all that He pleases. He is sovereign. And by sovereign, that's a really big word to basically say authority. That God has authority to do whatever He pleases. God's sovereign plans cannot be thwarted. You read this in Ephesians 1.11. It says that His counsel cannot be messed up. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Therefore, there's nothing that happens outside of God's control. There's a discussion today about whether God knows the future. One author has commented on this and says, the decisions 
not made to not exist anywhere or to be known even by God. They are potential yet to be realized, but not yet actual. God still moves into a future not wholly known and is not yet fixed. What the author is saying is that God is moving forward into the future as we are, and he doesn't know what's going to happen next. In the end, this God that he's displaying is not to be praised, but to pity. What hope do we have that God is in control of all things is seen in Romans 8.28. For God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. That God being in control of all things is able to work that together for your good. Or through prayer. We go to God in prayer because we realize that ultimately he's in control of everything. If he wasn't in control of everything, why do we pray to him? But because we realize that God is sovereign, that he is in control of all things, that is why we pray to him. Everything was ordained by God. And we see this as one writer comments, in the end, one must finally come to see that there is a God in heaven and there is no such thing as mere coincidence, not even the smallest affairs of life. Coincidence does not exist in the mind of God. God is sovereign over all things. And because He's sovereign over all things, that means He knows the end from the beginning. And we see this in Isaiah 46. He says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. He knows the end from the beginning. He created it. He ordained it. And He's bringing things to bear in our lives. Because He is sovereign over all things, we should give Him the glory. The third reason for why God deserves all the glory in your life is that God is supreme. God is supreme. Verse 4, there are idols, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not work, walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. God is supreme. God is not only steadfast, He's not only sovereign, but He's supreme. And you see this discussion here. This is the first time that, aside from a short mention in Psalm 96 of the talk of idols, the role that idols have played, and how they've plagued humanity to put something above God, to give something supremacy over God. This might be an indication here that the psalmist is reflecting back after being taken out of Babylonian captivity, the idols that Babylon had. These idols that they had bowed down to. And let's look at the idols of the nations. These gods are blind. They're deaf. They're mute. Without touch and smell. They serve no ability or function. And yet the people have bowed down to them. And they've worshipped them. 
So if you imagine here, we've got this block of wood and they've taken it and they've cut out and they've made a face. They've made it probably somewhere around this height and they have said, okay, I've created this and now I'm going to bow down to it. And Matthew Henry wisely comments on this saying that they make them images to show their ingenuity, meaning that like a carpenter, they show their ingenuity by what they've created. And doubtless are sensible men, but they that make them gods show their stupidity and are senseless, blockish things as the idols themselves. So the question that raises is, how, how do those who make them become like them? Well, Matthew Henry is saying that how do they become like them? They become foolish. To make something out of a block of wood and to say that this is supreme, even though I've created it, is foolish. And we look at this and we say, oh, well, they've constructed this idol and, you know, that was them back then and we don't bow down to idols like that now. But the thing is, is that idols can be constructed outwardly as a block of wood or of gold or silver. But idols are also spoken in Scripture of being in your heart. Ezekiel 14 says that idolatry can be found as the idols are taken into your hearts. Uh, if you take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll look at how the idols are seen not only as outward demonstrations, but also of idols that are taking place in our heart. We'll look at verse 6 of chapter 10. It says, Now these things took place as examples for us. He's speaking, Paul is speaking here of how the follies of Israel are being shown as to be examples of how to live a righteous life. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down, must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did. Paul continues to tell us of the story of what happened in the wilderness. And you read at verse 14 here, Therefore, in light of what we just read, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Idolatry here is seen as something that's taking place inside of you. That there are things that you are holding on into life that are supreme, that have knocked God off His place in your life. And that is idolatry just as much as the block of wood that the Babylonians constructed. So to recap this section, idolatry would be seen as things like sexual morality, testing, or complaining. And my question to you, have you bowed down to these things? Have you bowed down to worship sexual things in your life? Things seen on your computers, things seen on the television. Have you bowed down to worship things that you don't have? Complaining of things that you don't have. Have you bowed down to worship the praise and admiration of co-workers or friends? Putting them first in life, them supreme. If you've bowed down to these things, you've bowed down to worship something other than God. This is all idolatry. Whether you construct a piece of wood into an idol 
or whether you've constructed something in your heart and you've made it supreme. God is not like idols. And God has saved us from futile things to tell us something. That He is better. That He is better than all the things that we could ever look for in this world. That He is supreme. He alone is worthy of worship and He alone deserves all the glory. So God is steadfast and God is sovereign and God is supreme and God is the shield. If you take your Bibles and go back to Psalm 115, God is the shield. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. God is a shield. The argument is built off the trust the nations have in their idols and how they have addressed these idols as the one to protect them. And we see three groups here that he's speaking to. Israel, the Levitical priests of the house of Aaron, and the proselytes who have turned to Judaism. The shield functions as the metaphor of how God protects his people. As the soldier holds out his shield for protection in battle, the believer stands behind the protection that's found only in the Lord. And this is why David said in Psalm 62, He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. In September, we'll have the fifth year anniversary of September 11th. And most of you who were old enough at the time will know, or remember at least, where you were when you found out the news of the Twin Towers. And I was actually at UNCW campus at a vending machine, and there was a girl on the phone behind me talking to someone absolutely devastated about the news she heard. I was still trying to make out what had happened. Um, and then we went to class and heard the news that the Twin Towers had already come down. The, the event had already taken place, and I'd been away from any radio or television to know what had happened. So the devastation has already taken place. And that was one of those days where you look back and you think about how you have hoped in something maybe to be your shield and then it automatically gets turned on its head. That you've put maybe the defense that will never be taken down as a nation as your shield. And to realize that day that it is very, very easy for something like that to happen in your life to find out news of cancer, to find out news of brain tumors, that things that you've put in your life as shield, as protection, to realize very quickly that they, they can fall down. And this is why God must be the shield. But if, because if God is not the shield in your life, then you will be devastated when that time comes. And it will come. James says that when the trials come, not if, but when, but when those trials come in your life, what is going to be your rock? What is going to be your fortress? What is going to be your shield? And that's what God promises here in this passage, is that God is the shield. God is the one who protects us above anything this world has to offer. God will protect us. 
John Newton says in the third stanza of Amazing Grace, The Lord has promised good to me, and His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. God has promised to be the shield, and He's promised to protect us. And we see that in His word. And I ask you today, are you trusting in the Lord? Are you trusting that He is the shield, that He is the protection? Because if you're not, you'll realize very quickly how much devastation will come in your life. The fifth reason for why God deserves all the glory is that God is the supplier. God is the supplier. Verse 12, The Lord has remembered us, and He will bless us. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. We see here that God is the supplier. Don't turn there, but Matthew 6 speaks to the issue of God's providing hand. It is a lesser to the greater argument that if God cares for the lilies of the field, how much more would He care for those who are His children? That He would provide the needs that you are lacking. Food, shelter, water. That God cares for His people. Everything that we have comes from the Lord. If I was speaking to a crowd of people maybe in Africa, let's say Kenya, and was telling them about how God is the supplier, then we would probably be praying for things such as their needs, that God would be that providing hand, that He would provide food, shelter, and water. But being here in America, the application is different. The fact is, is most people in this room have all those needs at their hand and that they never have to pray for those because they're always there, that God has been so good to us here to provide those things. But the question I ask you today is that behind all that we have, do you see God as the one providing that? Do you see God as the supplier? You might say to me, well, I have a job and I work and I have provided for my family. But the question is, is behind that, how did you get lined up with that job? Oh, well, I had I went to college and I had a degree and it helps in that process. But ultimately, how did you have the intelligence? And all this stuff will eventually get back to why God is the supplier in your life. When I moved out to California for seminary, I was in a situation financially not really sure how I was going to pay for seminary. And um, one guy I know, he said, how much money do you need? And I was like, well, this is what I'm looking at. And he provided more than I actually needed and said, you know, this is what I want you to have, Tyler, because this isn't my money. This is God's money who he's given me a steward of. And in the process of that, really kind of debated, like, you know, I feel bad taking this money. But ultimately, he helped to shed light in my life on how everything that we have is given to us by God. That every good gift that we have, God has given us. And that we should share that stewardship with others. James 1.17 tells us that every good gift comes from God. So when you go out the doors today, I want you to remember this, that when you go to lunch, to thank God, to say, Lord, thank you that you've blessed us, that you are the supplier, that you've given us everything we need. How kind of you. We realize that God is behind all our needs 
we realize our dependence quickly. When we realize that everything we have has come from His hand, we realize, whoa, I have something to be thankful for. I have a dependence towards Him. And we realize this, that everything we have comes from Him. We realize very quickly that He deserves all the glory. Our last reason for why God deserves all the glory is that God is satisfying. God is satisfying. Verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into the silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Now these verses aren't arguing that there's not an afterlife. The, the statement simply is giving the obvious. That no one praises on earth God who is dead. You know, they're in the grave. So praises aren't going to go forth from the grave. They are silent. C.S. Lewis writes in the Reflection on the Psalms, he says, the God in the Psalms is the all-satisfying object. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Forever we will bless the Lord. And the problem is with this is that as we begin to search our hearts, and to think about, is God the satisfying object in our lives? It seems that we become more entranced with the things that God is giving us than God Himself. Meaning that when we look at the things that God is providing to us through salvation, those things almost appear to be the joy that we're longing for. Uh, John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel, addresses this issue. And he states it like this, If you were told that you had heaven and perfect health, and no hell, and you're never going to die, and you're never going to get sick, and you'll get to see all your family members. And that's what you had. Would that be heaven if God wasn't there? And that really quickly changes our perspective on things, that we've looked at heaven as a place where health and prosperity and all these things are really what we have longed for. And not to say that those things are bad, but what they are, they are a byproduct of where our true satisfaction should be. He says that the true satisfaction is that when we receive the gospel, it's not that we receive heaven or that we're not going to hell. It's that we have God. That we get to be satisfied by God forever. And the joy that comes with knowing God. And the Apostle Paul got this in Philippians 1.23. He says, my desire is to, bar, to part and be in heaven, not in hell. No, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. The satisfaction of knowing God is not that we get things, but the rather that we get to be satisfied, satisfied by God forever. And this is why Charles Spurgeon wrote, Though the dead cannot and the wicked will not, and the careless do not praise God, yet we will shout Alleluia forever and ever. God's satisfying presence should compel us to praise His name. And because God is more satisfying than anything the world has to offer, we should give Him all the glory. The sad reality is today 
that the people in the church have not heeded the words of the psalmist. That John Calvin is kind of seen as more of this deep thought on God that's sort of almost too God-focused. I was watching a television show and it was speaking about a Christian retreat that was coming up. And the Christian retreat is called Celebrate You. And in the process of this looking at this retreat and kind of wanting to picture what is Celebrate You, I, I had to go online to make sure I understood positively what they were talking about. Because it almost seemed that this can't be really what they're saying. But it was. It's Celebrate You. And pretty much what Celebrate You is equivalent to is Glory You. Praise You. Exalt You. And the idea and the concept of God deserving all the glory had been lost. And I don't think Christ died at Calvary to be second best. And I don't think God ordained all things and brought everything into being and sustains all things to be second best in your life. The fact is, is God has ordained all things. And Christ did die at Calvary. And because of this, He should deserve all the glory in your life. God is steadfast. And He is sovereign. He is supreme. And He is the shield in your life. He'll supply your needs. And ultimately, He is satisfying. And that's why we say with the psalmist, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. Let's pray. Father, we, we see these words of the psalmist and we realize how we've fallen short. How we've lived for the glory of ourselves. How we've exalted ourselves. How we've exalted the praise of man. And we haven't exalted You. So Lord, forgive us. Lord, remind us today as we leave how You are satisfying. May we seek satisfaction only in You. And because of that satisfaction, that we would give You all the glory. In Your name, Amen.